Hit me hard. Hello everyone and welcome to the San Juan Snowcast. I'm your host Chris and today is Wednesday, December 14th, 2022. All right, welcome back. That storm that rolled through the past two days certainly made it feel like winter out there. Pulses of heavy snow, sideways winds, and single digit temperatures. Man, that sure did make it feel like the season is finally here. But once again, This storm felt like a lot of bark without much of a bite, because here we are on Wednesday on the backside of another powerful storm system with less than a foot of total snow for most of the San Juans. This is classic La Nina stuff, where points north get the moisture and all the snow, while we get the wind. Bummer. But not all is lost, because it has been a pretty good December overall for snowfall, and folks are out there making fun turns in the backcountry. And isn't that what it's all about? And on top of that, the recent snowfall has in fact brought the snowpack of the San Juans back to basically average for this time of year. So that's pretty cool. On this week's show, we'll dive into the state of the snowpack, take a look at the recent avalanche activity from the past week across the San Juans, and then I'm going to share some nerdy facts about radios and wrap things up with a listen to some of the audience hot takes that I recorded back the Four Corners Snow and Avalanche Workshop in October. Bust out your balaclava, because touring these days has been cold on the face. And because the snowcast starts now. The snowcast is supported by Mountain Trip, a guide service and avalanche course provider based out of Telluride, Colorado. Folks, we have a one-day avalanche rescue course scheduled for December 23rd, and we want you, yes you, to sign up. So, answer the following questions honestly, close your eyes, and reflect. Have you already skied in the backcountry this year? Have you skied an avalanche drain? Have you or your partners practiced an avalanche rescue drill so far this season? How about last season? What is your ratio of days in the backcountry to days practicing avalanche rescue? Okay, open your eyes. Not to guilt trip you here, but if you're not practicing avalanche rescue every year, you're not being a responsible backcountry tourer. Folks, there were at least three avalanche burials last year in the San Juans that would have resulted in death had it not been for some heroic rescue skills. So, are you practiced? Are you prepared? Can you find multiple buried individuals and dig them out within 15 minutes? If not, then sign up right now for a rescue course. And these courses are not just cranking through drills. They're bringing you up to speed with the new best practices. They're an opportunity to get coaching and feedback from a professional. And they're a chance to make sure that your partners have the skills they need to potentially save your life. Don't think you're too good or too experienced to take a course. You're not. Do it now and establish your skill set before we get into the meat of the season when we're too distracted by hunting out powder stashes. I promise you will not regret taking an avalanche rescue course, no matter how many seasons you've been in the backcountry. So to sign up, check out mountaintrip.com and look for the avalanche courses tab. The snowcast is also supported by So Alpine. 
You know, every time I check out the So Alpine Instagram page, I see something new. And that's because Hannah and the gals at So Alpine, they're constantly innovating new products, coming up with ideas, and redesigning their current ones. From rescue sleds and trucker hats, to dog toys and bike frame bags, and everything in between, there's truly something for everyone in the So Alpine catalog. So, head over to sewalpine.com, or follow them on Instagram at so underscore alpine to support a locally owned and operated grassroots business based in Durango. Okay, well we just had a storm, so let's kick things off with a storm update and the state of the snowpack. First things first, the snow totals. This storm kicked into gear late Sunday and continued off and on through Tuesday night. Here are the totals from the two-day storm event from most to least. Wolf Creek Pass took the cake with 13 inches overall. The La Plata Mountains outside of Durango probably got around 10 inches. Colbank Pass got around 9. Red Mountain Pass got around 6 inches. Mollus Pass got around 6. And Lizard Head Pass also ended up with somewhere in the close to 6-inch range of new snowfall. So far this season, we have yet to have a single storm deliver more than 12 inches of new snow across the wands, which is pretty wild. I mean, let's not forget last season when that Christmas Day storm was a huge multi-day event that delivered multiple feet to our mountains and basically saved our entire season. Thus far this winter, things have been more incremental in terms of loading, and our snowpack is slowly growing to its normal size. Right now, the snowpack for the entire state of Colorado is sitting at 108% of our 30-year average. Here in the Wands, we're sitting at 98% of average, and we just hit 5 inches of snow water equivalent, aka SWE, in the snow that makes up our snowpack. All in all, December has been pretty decent for the San Juans. Or at least, it hasn't been as abysmal as it has in the past. But do you even want to know what's going on outside of the Wands? Are you sure? You want to know how much this storm produced in California? Okay, I'll tell you. Well, most Sierra ski resorts just got slammed with over 50 inches of new snow. Woof. And most of it fell over the course of just two days. How about up in Utah? Are you sure you want to know? Well, I'm going to tell you, it's not going to feel good. But okay, here it is. You asked for it. Alta Snowbird, they just reported 46 inches for their weekend total. And the Wasatch backcountry out of Salt Lake City, they've been getting 16 inches of new snow every day for the last three days. Ouch. I know. It stinks. So if you're really fiending for a powder day and have nothing better to do, I'd suggest a little road trip up to the Wasatch. Because man, they've got some serious snow on the ground. And people are skiing big lines in waist-deep powder. <sighs> How I would kill to have the next week off for pow chasing. But like I said earlier, we've got enough snow to ride down here in the San Juans. And you know what that means? There's enough snow to slide. So let's talk about the state of the snowpack. Since last week's episode, when we were looking at high avalanche danger and an avalanche warning in effect, we've been hanging out at considerable danger across most of the San Juans. And that's near and above treeline with moderate danger below treeline. The avalanche problem we're dealing with continues to be, yep, persistent slab. And the distribution of this persistent weak layer is pretty widespread around the north half of the compass, including east and west aspects at all elevations in some different parts of our range. 
We also now have a thicker and stiffer slab than we've had in our snowpack all season, and it's resting atop that 1129 weak layer. Observers continue to find woomphs, collapses, cracks, and easy fractures in their snow pit tests. And on top of all that, the most obvious thing, there's been a bunch of avalanches. Remember, recent avalanche activity is the best sign of instability. And just since last Wednesday, there have been 64 different avalanches reported to the CAIC from the North San Juans. That's more than any other zone in the entire state of Colorado. So let that be an eye-opener for you. Of the 64 slides that occurred, 53 were natural, 4 were human-triggered, 4 had an unknown trigger, and 3 were triggered with explosives. The distribution of these avalanches was, yeah, you guessed it, mostly confined to northerly aspects, with due north aspects producing 20 of the 64 slides. But interestingly, there were a bunch of avalanches on east and west aspects as well, and really slides happened at pretty much every elevation band. Notably, with shifting winds blowing a ton of snow around prior to the most recent storm, there was a spike of avalanches on northwest and west aspects above treeline, where I suspect that wind loading played a role in creating some of these natural avalanches. One important takeaway from last week's avalanche activity is that the size and destructive potential of these avalanches, well, it's growing, with some crowns in the range of 2 to 3 feet thick. We've yet to see a slide bigger than D2, which is large enough to bury, injure, or kill a person, but honestly, D2 avalanches are scary enough. Early season, it's over, my friends, and unfortunately, dangerous avalanche season is here. Let's take a look at the various human-triggered avalanches reported to the CIC from the last seven days. Two of them happened in Ophir, two occurred on Red Mountain Pass, and one happened down near Ironton, north of Red Mountain Pass. Luckily, none of these slides caught anybody, but there are some interesting trends that we should look at. The two Ofer slides were remote triggered by skiers, with both avalanches releasing in steeper terrain adjacent to where the skiers were traveling. One of the Red Mountain Pass slides happened on Commodore when two skiers stomped on the cornice at the top, which got a soft slab to release below them. And then the last two avalanches happened on road cuts, where skiers were traveling on flat summer roads below a steep road cut that triggered above them and pretty much flushed over the road. One of these happened on Corkscrew Pass Road near Ironton, and one was on the Putney Road off of the top of Red Mountain Pass. So what are our key takeaways from these incidents? Well, for one, we have a touchy, persistent slab problem out there, and it's showing its reactivity. Two, the slab sitting on top of our November 29th weak layer is now thick enough and stiff enough to communicate a collapse across the terrain. That's why we're getting these remote triggers. And three, folks are getting out there and poking the bear. And the same places that we want to go skiing, or in some cases the only places we can go skiing, are the same spots where that avalanche problem is lurking. Is this season any different from, you know, what we normally end up with here in the wands? Absolutely not. It's basically the same old story for us, sadly. So all the more reason to get some training in this early season and to make sure that you're ready for the tricky days of spooky, moderate, persistent slab tiptoeing that are sure to come this winter. Well, how about a look ahead? What's in the forecast? Well, there's a slight chance of a little more snow for the north end of the Wands this Thursday and Friday, but otherwise we're looking pretty high and dry until late next week when we've got a chance for another storm. 
Temperatures going into this weekend are going to be super cold, with single-digit temperatures and wind chills on Friday morning, yielding to warmer temps in the 20s for Saturday and Sunday. And that's it for the weather. Funk break! Alright. In the last episode, I teased that I'd get a little nerdy this time around about radios and talk briefly about how and why we're updating the backcountry radio program here in Telluride. You know, last Thursday, we teased some of these updates at the PyFun backcountry chat, but we realized that ultimately there's still some things to tweak before we fully launch these updates. We also realized that for people to get on board with these changes, we're going to need to educate them on why we felt the need to change a system that's basically been in place since 2016. So let's start at the beginning. Radios in the backcountry. Why use them? Well, because they communicate a lot more information than a hootie hoo. Which ones to use? Well, I'm going to keep it simple and focus on family band two-way radios. Most folks know these simply as walkie-talkies, and this category includes handheld radios from Midland or Motorola or even Rocky Talkies, as well as the very popular BCA Link radios, which feature a separate mic, push-to-talk button, and channel selector that lives on your shoulder strap. Now, these radios, they all work in pretty much the same way, transmitting on a specific channel, aka a frequency, and then using a subchannel or privacy code or a squelch tone to distinguish your partner's transmissions from others on that same channel. When you're looking at your radio, the big number on the screen, that's the channel. And the small number in the bottom right-hand corner, that's actually the squelch tone. Squelch. What an awesome word. The funny thing is that every radio manufacturer, they all call this something different. From privacy code to sub-channels to interference eliminator codes. But really, it's all just squelch. So what is squelch anyways? Well, squelch, it's a radio term. And the easiest way to think about it is it's like a filter that your radio uses to filter through all the incoming traffic and differentiate out just the frequency that you're trying to hear. For instance, when your radio is on channel one with no privacy codes or squelch applied, so that would be like channel one, zero, then you can hear anyone else out there who is transmitting on channel one even if they have a privacy code set up. But when you apply a privacy code and you and your partner both go to channel one, privacy code one, then you're only going to be able to hear from people who are using that same privacy code. How your radio uses squelch kind of depends on the brand of the radio. There's two ways a radio can apply squelch. One is called continuous tone-coded squelch system, aka CTCSS. And the other is called Digital Coded Squelch, a.k.a. DCS. To be honest, you don't need to know the difference, but just know that these radios usually use one of these two systems to ignore all the other signals that are floating around out there and narrow in on the one your body is using. All right, so that's Squelch in a nutshell. Now, the other thing you should know about radio channels is that they don't all operate on the same power level. For instance, FRS channels 1 through 7 they operate at a max power of 2 watts. Whereas channels 8 through 14, they only operate at a half watt power. So this means that if you're on channel 8, your output power and therefore the range of your radio is one quarter of what it would be if you were operating on, say, channel 4. 
So I would love to know how the Backcountry Access folks came up with their preset channels that come auto-programmed on their link radios. I mean, I think I can probably guess why they chose 420 and 911, but otherwise the other channels just seem kind of random. And the problem with this is that most folks will never think twice about changing these presets. I mean, we used them originally here in Telluride for our local backcountry radio program because we knew it would just be easier for people to use the presets that were already on their radio. The problem with that is we realized that, you know, using preset D, which is channel 810 in Ofer, that means that folks are only using a channel that has half watt power and that's going to limit their range. So what points am I trying to get at here? Well, first point, we realized that there could be a benefit to assigning each major zone in the Telluride region an open channel, meaning that, that if you want to hear all the traffic for the northern Telluride zone, you can just go to channel one zero and monitor all that chatter. But we also realized there's value in making smaller zones within the larger zones that are distinguished by a privacy code. So let's say you're in Bear Creek, which is in the northern zone of the Telluride region. That's channel one. And you want to communicate only with your partners who are in Lower Bear Creek. Well, then you could go to 1-1 and have a smaller zone within which to communicate. But if for any reason you want to find out what's happening in the entire drainage, you could go to the open channel 1-0 and hear all that traffic. And then let's say maybe you hear your friends on the radio and they're talking their way down through some techie line in Upper Bear Creek. Well, then you could go to that channel 1-2 to talk just to them and to see how conditions are up there. Making sense so far? Basically, big zones with smaller zones within them. The other big point I'm trying to make is that we want everyone to be transmitting on these higher wattage channels. Because when is there a downside to having more range? We might as well use the radio to their maximum potential. And I've got a quick story I want to share to demonstrate my point. Two years ago, after closing day for the Telluride ski area, some friends and I began hiking up Palmyra Peak to try and ski off the top. We had our BCA link radios on preset C, which is channel four, privacy code 20. And as we began climbing the ridge, we heard a faint staticky transmission crackle through the radio. SOS, SOS, we need rescue. I immediately recognized the voice as being from one of my friends, but I thought he was skiing in Rico today. That's like 20 miles to the Southwest from where we were. We responded on the radio and actually got a conversation going from where we were positioned on the ridge. But as soon as we moved up or down the ridge more than 20 feet, we lost their signal. Turns out we had a perfect line of sight to where they were on a mountain outside of Rico. And my poor friend, he'd been trying every single channel on his BCA, repeating his SOS distress call for the last hour. Funny enough, at the same exact moment that we called 911 and got a hold of dispatch, my buddy's partner made it down to the Rico fire station and alerted them to the situation. Unfortunately, they were not carrying a satellite communication device, only a radio. So that was their only means of communicating for outside help. Moral of the story, we were on a higher wattage channel that was able to pick up their distress call some 20 miles away. Second moral of the story, bring an inreach. All right, so to wrap this whole radio spiel up, I'll say this. Do you have to have a radio to play in the backcountry? No. But I will say it has become pretty much a standard gear item in my backcountry community. If you do use a radio, know how it works and know how to use it. Know how to change the channels. And if you're in the Telluride area, please stay tuned for the final update that we will reveal soon. 
Once it's ready, we'll send out a press release and do tons of public outreach via social media, the newspaper, and our local radio station. Stay tuned. And now, it's Hot Takes time. I'm going to end this show with a few of my favorite hot takes sourced from the crowd at this year's Four Corner Snow and Avalanche Workshop that went down back in October in Silverton. Now remember, a hot take is just someone's spicy perspective on our backcountry community. Things they like, things they don't, things they maybe want to change. And you know what? I see a good hot take as some food for thought. But that said, don't take anything you hear too seriously. Enjoy. All right, so don't call it a beacon. It's a transceiver because it transmits and it receives. And if you have one and a dog, don't put it in the dog's backpack. My hot take is that I think that the backcountry skiing community is a little bit too gatekeepy. I think, like, definitely makes sense that we don't want things to get crowded. But to be honest, most of the time that I go out, there's very few people out there. And it also makes sense that we don't want people to hurt themselves. But I think sometimes it can feel a little bit, like, paternalistic. And I think in reality, if there's someone who's like just trying to get into the sport and they've taken an AVI course and they're like pretty responsible, they'll end up being a lot safer if they have more information about terrain than if they have less. So that is my hot take. Yeah, so one way that I think that we could improve this is just be more willing to talk about terrain. So like if you know someone who's trying to get into the sport, tell them about the places that you like to ski, be really specific. Maybe even tell them about your secret stashes. I think that would make a big difference. Uh, Zach here with the Crestview Avalanche Center. One thing that I'm guilty of, I know a lot of other people are guilty of, is just not setting bomb-proof up tracks. And um, I think the way we can all improve is just choose a slightly less risky ascent track. Even when you know conditions are great, um, minimize your risk as much as you can on the way up because that's when you're most vulnerable. And then we get multiple people caught in avalanches. Um, you're not, you got your skins on, so you're not as able to, you're not able to get off the slab as quickly if it breaks. Boom. That's trending. More and more people get Yeah, yeah. That is the trend, is we're seeing more people, multiple groups, or multiple party, multiple people in a party getting caught at the same time, and people while they're climbing, so. Even if it means, like, taking an extra 10 minutes to go kind of get on some wanky ridge or whatever, that's the way to do it. Hi, I'm Jack with Salmon Expeditions, and I'm a hot take. Hello, my name's Holly Hubner, and I would like to ask, is a hot dog a sandwich? Hello, this is Holly Hubner, and I would like to let you know that, yes, a hot dog is, in fact, a sandwich. Hi, I'm Jack Glenn with Salmon Expeditions, and I always put my left ski boot on first, every time, every time. Hey, my name's Chris with the San Juan Snowcast, and I would just like to say, some of those were not hot takes but they're pretty funny, right? Anyways, thanks to everybody who swung by the booth at Foresaw and talked into my mic. We're going to do another Hot Takes episode real soon this winter, so get ready. All right, well, that's it for this week's show. Thanks for listening, and hopefully I didn't lose you with all that radio mumbo-jumbo. Hey, if you like the show, please leave me a rating or a review. It'll help other folks find the show, and it'll also give you the warm and fuzzy feeling of doing something nice for a random stranger.
Although at this point, I'd like to think we're more than just strangers. Don't you? And if you don't like the show, dang, tell me why. You can send me an email at sanwansnowcast at gmail.com, and I promise I will try to hear you out. I want to send a shout out to Jamie from Grand Junction and Sierra from Telluride for sending me a message after last week's show. Jamie asked a good question about weather station glitches that I want to take a second to answer right here. You know, on Instagram, I often post the snowfall tables from the CIC after a good storm. And sometimes right at the top of the table is a weather station that maybe has like 42 inches while all the other weather stations are in the six to 10 inch range. That, my friends, is a glitch. I hate to point fingers, but it's often the ski areas, Telluride, Aspen Highlands, I'm looking at you. They have these glitches and it should be pretty easy to spot them because usually they are dramatically different than the numbers you see in the rest of the table. So good question, Jamie. And I'll say you certainly weren't the only person to ask it. And lastly, I just want to say it again, sign up for an avalanche rescue course and do some freaking training this year. If you haven't practiced your rescue skills in the last few years, but you frequently get out in our local backcountry, then that is just negligent. And you should think long and hard about it. You are literally failing your touring partners. And I know that sounds tough, but hey, it's only because I love you and I want us to all be dialed in and have each other's back out there. All right, people, enjoy that fresh snow, but play safe out there, friends. And until next time, thanks for